today at our scripture reading, which is from the book of Matthew. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 13 today. Um, two weeks ago, when I was with you, we, we looked at the, pretty much the same passage, but I want to read it to you again today from Matthew chapter 13. I want us to begin at verse 24 and look uh, through to the 30th verse, and then we'll go from 44 to 52 to look at this scripture reading together. Jesus is continuing to look at the kingdom. If you look at this chapter, you see that there are seven parables listed in here um, that deal with the kingdom. And Jesus is explaining what the kingdom of God is. He's explaining by using these illustrations, by these similes, what you know, what the kingdom of God is like. And he doesn't just use one, he uses several. He keeps going over it. Well, it's like this, or it's like this, or it's like this, or it's like this. So he's, this is what he's going to give us in these passages today. So let me begin reading it. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed... In his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but then gather the wheat into my barn. Now skip to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure <clears throat> hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And finding one pearl, he of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, as we open your word today, as we look at these passages, as we think about what Jesus is saying about these parables 
We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts, that you would put everything together and help us to see it. And we thank you that we can know that we have a true teacher, the Holy Spirit, who will guide us into all truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When the crowds were following Jesus, <clears throat> you know, when the biggest crowds were following Jesus, I want you to see what he was telling them. If you look back at chapter 13 of Matthew, if you look at the first two verses, notice what it says here. It says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. It's interesting that the, um, in the Greek it says many crowds gathered together. In other words, there was such a great group of people there uh, gathering around Jesus that Jesus, of course, they were pushing and shoving to be around Jesus and to be close to him. And what he ended up doing was getting into that boat and sitting off into the boat and letting all the people just line the shore around him because they'd been so close to him, pushing and shoving, trying to be near him every day and to hear every word from his mouth. In the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 14, we have the feeding of the 5,000. This tells us something about the size of the crowd that was around Jesus. I mean, you'll remember that the 5,000 wasn't the number of people there, it was the number of men that were there. In other words, the number of the heads of the households. And it, and it says in Matthew 14, 21, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and the children. So there are probably as many women as men, and there are probably at least twice as many children as there were, as there were women. So that crowd that Jesus was looking at that was following him around during these days was huge. It was at least 20,000 people, Bible scholars tell us. Now, one of the things I like to do, which my family is very patient with, is to watch golf. Uh, they all say that it's like watching paint dry. And uh, I, I can't get very many advocates to watch golf with me aside from Susan, who's very faithful to sit there with me during the hours of a golf tournament. Uh, I started doing that when my dad and I used to do it together when I was a teenager. He loved to watch golf, and I'd sit with him on Sunday afternoons or Saturday afternoons, and we'd watch golf for a while. Well, you know, two weeks ago was the Waste Management Open. And if there's a rowdy golf tournament, that is one of the rowdiest. They said they quit counting how big the crowd was. The crowd was over 200,000, and they just quit counting how many people were there. Well, while I was watching that, I was thinking about that 16th green. Because right at the 16th green, right around that whole hole, there is this huge horseshoe-shaped um, stadium all around that one particular hole. And that group of people there that line up in all those layers of that stadium, that's 20,000 people. Now that is just a monstrous crowd. You know, 
you you look at the at the crowds packed in there and all that and you know the golfer comes up and they start jeering at him they make all kinds of noise i don't know how in the world he hits and he hits and if he hits a hole in one they go crazy they start taking water bottles and cups and they throw them right down onto the green and onto the grass you know it's just it's just a crazy experience but the size of that crowd is what i'm saying the size of 20,000 people. Can you imagine those 20,000 people around Jesus trying to listen to every word he said? They're lining the shore up around him, and he has to go out, float out in the boat a little bit of ways so that his voice can kind of bounce off as a natural amphitheater, and the people can hear him. So Jesus is there, and so what does he teach them? When the biggest crowds are there, it's important to see what Jesus chose to tell them about. And what he tells them about is what we find here in Matthew 13. We find that he's telling them parables of the kingdom. Because you see, they need to hear what the kingdom of God is like. With those thousands of people there together, they need to understand what the kingdom of God, how important the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom is, how you get into the kingdom, how you relate to the king. All of this is important. So Jesus knew that this was so important, he had to explain to them about the whole things about the kingdom. So he tells them this, these stories, these parables. And the parables are, are simple stories. And you know, when you, when you read the parables, the, you're supposed to just pay attention primarily to the point of the parable. You don't want to push every little thing that's in the parable because Jesus is telling a story and he wants you to be getting exactly what the parable is all about in the, in the main. He's telling different stories of what the kingdom of God is like so that they could understand how to enter it and how to be citizens of the kingdom. Well, we saw the last time we were together when we studied this that most people thought of the kingdom of God as kind of in political terms. You know, most of the Jewish people looked at the kingdom of God like we look at political parties. The main group that was in charge then, of course, was the Romans. The Romans controlled everything. They controlled their politics. They, controlled, they appointed the king. They made sure that he was a stooge that did exactly what they wanted. They... Um, determined how the economy ran, it was their money, it was, I mean, you know, by and large they controlled everything. And so the Jews really longed for the day when they could get rid of the Romans. They hated the fact that the Romans were their masters, they hated the fact that they had to do everything according to Rome, that they couldn't do what they were used to doing. And they wanted to throw off the power of Rome and they're oppressing power, and they wanted to have a Jewish Messiah, a king, a leader, who would lead them and would do away with Rome. So Jesus is here to tell them what the kingdom of God is like. He's here to tell them about what the kingdom of God really is. And this morning, I want to look with you at the nature of the kingdom, and I want us to look also to keep our eye on the harvest, which is what Jesus is talking about in several of the, of the parables. So let's talk about the nature of the kingdom first. What's the kingdom really like? Well, I want to skip over to Mark chapter 4 with you, 
and look at Mark 4, 26 to 29. Let me read this for you. Mark 4, verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade and then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop <coughs> permits, he immediately puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's the kingdom of God like? How does it grow? You know, so oftentimes we think, we look around us and we, say, we look at America, and we look at churches, and we look at situations, we look around and we say, the kingdom of heaven seems to be growing slow. It doesn't seem to be growing as powerfully as it was here. And we think of all these things. And in this parable, Jesus says, well, the farmer sows his seed, and then the seed sprouts and it grows day by day, but he doesn't know how. Finally, the day of harvest comes, and the harvest time is there, and he brings in the harvest. I told you a few weeks ago about my experience working with church leaders in West Africa, particularly Senegal and Ivory Coast, and we talked about what the growth was like in those countries. These are Muslim countries. Uh, Peter's been there. Uh, he knows. He spent time as an intern there. Um, we were in West Africa. When I first started going, there were seven or eight churches, and Frank Sindler says there were about a thousand evangelical believers uh, in those days in a whole nation of 10 million people. A thousand out of 10 million. But then things started to happen. And God started to work, and there were all these things that were going along. Kind of like the kingdom looked like it was growing slow, and then all of a sudden the harvest came in. Because from 2003 to 2013, the churches in, in Senegal grew from about 7 to about 50. And the number of believers grew from like 1,000 evangelical believers in Senegal to 35,000 evangelical believers. Now, 35 times in just a few years. Can you imagine that? The growth of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming, and God says it's at work, and sometimes we don't see how it's growing, and we think it's growing slow, and we don't think anything is happening, but God is at work because the kingdom is coming. He says in one of these parables, it's like leaven. It's a little bit like the yeast that you put in that bowl of flour when you're making bread. You put it in there and you give it time and all of a sudden the, the yeast permeates that whole bowl of bread flour and soon it's rising and you can make bread out of it. The kingdom is coming. God's work is like that and it's going to, it's going to take place. Dr. Simon Kistemaker was my New Testament professor in seminary. And he wrote a book on the parables of the kingdom. And let me give you a quote here from uh, Dr. Kistemaker. The victory is sure. Harvest is approaching. And it will certainly arrive at, a very, at the very moment decided in God's eternal plan. Then God's kingdom will be revealed in all of its splendor. 
You know, the wonder of the kingdom of God that's coming. The wonder of it. It's going to be revealed one day. We are looking and we're looking and we're looking. And one day it's going to come in great power and glory. Now, do you see what this means for us? It means that we have to keep on keeping on. It means as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to keep doing what we are doing, keep following the path that we're supposed to be on. We need not be discouraged because God is not bringing in huge number of folks, maybe right at the place where we are and what we see, but God is at work and the seed is growing and people are being won to Christ and lives are changing. In 1989, uh, Tim Keller, who passed away last fall, uh, or last summer, I guess it was. In 1989, he was called to plant a church in New York City. At the time, in New York City, there was only 1% of the residents of New York City would claim to be evangelical Christians. 1% of the population. That's about like Senegal at that time. Well, Redeemer Presbyterian Church was planted in there and planted a few other churches and helped other churches in the gospel and kind of was used by God among other churches and other works to see a growth in the kingdom in New York City. And a few years ago, I remember Tim had said that their goal was now. They were seeing that and praying that in the next couple of years that there would be 15% of the population of New York City would be evangelical Christian. From 1% to 15%. You know, we just need to keep on doing what we're doing. We need to keep on taking the gospel to every place we can. We need to keep on standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep on bringing the word of God. Because God's kingdom may be slow. And it may look like it's not progressing as fast as we like. But it's working. And it's working. Just like the parable says. We may know everything about how the king, we may not know everything about how the kingdom grows, but we, what we do know is we enter the kingdom by the miracle of the new birth. You know, you're not a Christian unless you've experienced the miracle of the new birth. Remember Nicodemus, he was the most respected teacher in Israel. He had all the credentials. He was moral. He was well-educated. He was the teacher. He had standing in the community. But Jesus looked at this moral man and he said, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. Something has to happen to you on the inside. Now, we don't all have to have dramatic um, conversion stories like the Apostle Paul. I didn't grow up that way. I was converted in college. But the word was sown in my life from the time I was a little boy by mom and dad, by the church that I went to, by my Sunday school teachers, uh, by, by some of my Christian friends. I know that God worked in me, and I know that there was a change in me. When I was in college, I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't know if I've ever done this right before, but I do it now, and I mean it with all my heart. And I knew that there was a change in me. No lightning bolt, you know, struck the tree near me, and I didn't hear any voices, but I knew for certain that God had changed me. The miracle of the new birth, that God changes us on the inside. He changes us. Sometimes we realize we have to be brought low. 
we have to acknowledge that we're sinners. We have to acknowledge that we don't deserve anything, that we're broken and that we're sinful and that the only thing that could ever help us was the death of the perfect Son of God. Only His salvation could help us and change us and make us new. We have to go low to be raised up in a sense. You know, you have to go down and realize that there's nothing good in my flesh, as the scripture says. But only Jesus can save me and make my life new. You remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler said, well, what one thing am I lacking? In other words, what thing do I need to add to my resume? What little piece am I not making up? You know, what, what has to happen to kind of change me that I'll be acceptable and be worthy in your sight? And Jesus said, you don't need a renovation. You need to be raised from the dead. You need new life. You need to be raised from the dead to new life in Jesus Christ. You need to be transformed as the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians. You need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God's dear Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he said that the kingdom is now, but its growth is mysterious. He says the growth of the kingdom is internal. It takes place inside of us. He said the growth is external. We're going to see it happen out in the world around us. We're going to see the church grow and the kingdom grow. And it's miraculous. It goes by the way of the new birth. But to understand the kingdom and to keep your eye, you have to keep your eye on the harvest. That's what these other two parables are that the Lord Jesus brings in here. The parable of the tares and the wheat and the parable of the net. Both of those talk about the end, about the harvest, about when everything is at the end and it comes due. Now... <clears throat> We have read the parable about the, the tares and the wheat. In fact, I've read it to you on two different Sundays. And it's interesting that Jesus' explanation of the parable uh, is kind of eye-opening. Let me turn to Matthew 13 at verse 36 and read you a little bit of this again. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the wheel field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And he who has ears, let him hear." Jesus is telling us about the harvest. Jesus is telling us about the end of the age. He's telling us about the time when judgment comes. He says the Son of Man is Jesus, the true Messiah, and He's coming, and He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. 
The just and holy God is going to make all things right. He's going to remove all unrighteousness from the world. He's going to remove all offensive things out of the world. Well, think about it. What are those things that destroy the world now? What are the things that are the problems that cause things to stumble? Well, we could think what Jesus said. Hate, evil thoughts, envy, sexual sin, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, pride. All of those things one day are going to be gone. All those things are going to be taken out of the world. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come at the end of age and He will send out His angels and they will gather all offensive things out of the kingdom. In other words, the good news is at the end of the age when God comes to judge and bring, He's going to get rid of all those things. He's going to make all things new. He's going to make us new. He's going to make us where all these parts of us that we hate, the criticisms, the self-righteousness, the judgment, the envy, the slander, all these things are going to be gone, and he's going to erase them. That's going to be wonderful indeed, isn't it? And in verse 41, it says the Son of Man is going to come at the end of an age, and they're going to gather not just the offensive things, but then he's going to make a decision with the people. He's going to take up uh, the crowds, and he's going to make that distinction among the just and the unjust. Now, maybe when you were growing up, like kind of when I was growing up, we were told that the Old Testament was the book that kind of talked about a God of wrath, and the New Testament was the book that talked about the God of love and mercy. And so everybody kind of looked down on the Old Testament, and they looked lovingly at the New Testament, because the New Testament's where we're going to hear all this good news of love and mercy and grace of God, and the Old Testament was all justice, wrath, you know, all those scary things. But the truth is, the Old Testament introduced the concept of wrath and judgment, but it's really Jesus that talks about it more than the Old Testament did. There are just a few places in the Old Testament where it talks about the wrath of God and the judgment and justice of God, but Jesus is talking about it all the time. He talks about it here in the parables, he talks about it in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus is talking about the justice to come, about the wrath of God, about outside, away from God, there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and all of that stuff. Jesus is telling us way more than the Old Testament ever did because God, he says, is coming to judge. And he, Jesus, is going to be the judge. He has been given the right as the king to come and to judge. And one day he is going to separate the wheat, he says, from the tares. One day he will do it. He says, you know, the wheat and the tares grow up together and they look so much alike. And they, they called that, the tares is often called darnel or there's another word for it that different commentators have talked about. But it, it wrapped itself around the wheat and it was so entwined with the wheat that if you tried to pull up the tear, you would uproot, I mean, yeah, the, the weed, you would uproot the good wheat and you'd ruin the crop. That's why you have to wait until the final day for the, for the judgment to separate the two. God says one day he's going to gather the wheat into his barn. One day he will gather the weeds into bundles and burn them. And one day he will 
gather everything that causes people to stumble and take it out. You see, it says here that the righteous whom the angels are going to gather will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. The parable of the net in verse 47 is just like this. In verse 49 it says, At the end of the age the angels will go out and they will separate the evil from the righteous. And those that are unrighteous will be thrown into the furnace of fire of judgment. And there in that place there will be weeping and anguish and grinding of teeth. You know, I thought it was interesting that in our New City Catechism it says at the very end, just as one day we will be re resurrected, so this wor world will one day be restored. But those who do not trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. Very open about the harvest, very open about the end. And we need to be as open as Jesus is telling about us, telling this to us. We need to know it. We need to be prepared for the harvest. Jesus told the crowds the truth. They needed to hear that the kingdom of the world has two kinds of people in it. There's basically only two kinds of people. And it's the wheat and the tares, the saved and the lost, the righteous and the unrighteous. But you see, we, we think differently, don't we? Our culture's taught us to think differently about the world around us. We think of good people, which are kind of like us, and we think of bad people, which are kind of like the drug dealers and the child molesters and the, you know, all the evil people and the mafia. We think, of, you know, we think of two kinds of people like that. Moral people and then drug dealers, child molesters, hardened criminals. But when you think about it, you know, you think about what defiles and what makes people righteous or unrighteous, and what did Jesus say? He says, what defiles us is the stuff that comes out of our hearts. And these are the things that come out of everybody's heart. Unrighteousness, envy, jealousy, selfishness, hatred, lust, all, theft. All of these things come out of all of our hearts. So how does this give us any hope for the future? How does this give us any hope that we're going to be selected and not kicked out? Well, the Apostle Paul said, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who do good. There's none who seek for God. Boy, that's not good news. Romans 3. So that means that there are no righteous people, right? There's nobody that's really going to be gathered into the kingdom and shine forever. No, that can't be true because Jesus says there are going to be righteous people gathered in this parable. So how do the righteous become righteous? They become righteous by being declared righteous, by God's righteousness being credited to our account, as the Apostle Paul says. God is the one who has chosen to save a people out of all the world, ungodly, lost people, God is the one who's chosen to save ungodly, lost, unrighteous people and bring them into his kingdom by being their righteous savior. He is the one that has chosen to love us and to give us the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has drawn 
people to himself. His Holy Spirit draws us. We're made alive to God. We're caused to be born again. We're given faith as a gift. There wouldn't be anybody on the last day if it just had to do with us. But God is the one who has loved us in Jesus Christ. He's called us to himself. He's drawn us in out of the world of sin and darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You see, the good news is that the kingdom of God is coming. And even though it's not here yet because the king's not here yet, the kingdom is coming and the king is going to come because he's already died on the cross to redeem us. He's already died to pay the penalty for our sin. He has already brought us from the outside to the inside. And the world is changing. You see, one of the joys is knowing that God has already started that work of transformation and redemption that's going to come to fullness at the end of the world when the whole world is going to be restored. God is already doing that through people like you and me. God is redeeming the world now because redeemed people are the ones that are making a difference. Redeemed people are loving their neighbors more than themselves. Redeemed people are giving away their money to good causes. Redeemed people are fighting injustice and loving the poor. Redeemed people are standing up for the helpless and the lost and the powerless people in this world. Are you keeping your eye on the harvest? You see, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be keeping our eye on the harvest. Are you growing in faith eternally? Are you trusting that God is bringing in His kingdom? Are you rejoicing in the King who gave up everything so that you could be in His kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the message of the gospel that it's such good news, that it's good news for us who though the fact that we are not in ourselves good, that we haven't sought you like we should, we haven't loved your ways like we should, we haven't sought you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And if it was up to us, Father, we would never be in your kingdom. We would be lost and separated. We would be abandoned. We would be abandoned away to judgment. And yet you loved us in Jesus Christ. You sent him for us. He died for us and paid the penalty for our sins. And you have included us into your kingdom and called us your family and welcomed us in. And Father, we thank you for that. We pray that we might be those people who are called to be living to restore this world in Jesus Christ, to make a difference, to make the world a new place. And we pray, Father, for that day when Jesus will come with his angels on clouds in glory and that he will bring his kingdom in, in its fullness, and we will shine in your kingdom forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.